Welcome to RevAmp, the revenue amplification podcast powered by DealHub.io. I'm your host, Gideon Thomas, and we will be speaking to some of the most exciting revenue leaders within the community. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Um, I'm Barry Muller filling in for Gideon Thomas on this week's RevAmp podcast. Um, I wanted to introduce our listeners uh, to our guest, uh, Martin Fleming, Chief Revenue Scientist at Verisynth. Um, he does many things, uh, other things besides for that, has a pretty um, interesting background, but I'll let Martin take it from here to give us a little bit more information about his background. So thanks, Barry. It's great to be with you uh, today. Uh, that is correct. I do have the role of Chief Revenue Scientist with Verisynth. And really what I am asked to do is to help bring together um, the transformation that we see in the sales process. Uh, Verison, as you know, is focused on sales performance management and really the intersection of that transformation with data science uh, and increase analytic capabilities that we now have, uh, particularly because the sales process and sellers generate so much data on their own. Uh, it's, a, it's a very rich and fruitful space to help improve uh, the productivity of sellers, help sellers improve their income, uh, help sales leaders be more successful, and help business leaders achieve their financial objectives. So it's, uh, my role is really at the intersection of data science and uh, business process transformation. Amazing. So I love that. Trying to help others be more successful uh, through data and AI. Um, that's really cool. And then uh, before this podcast, uh, before we start recording this podcast, you're telling me a bit about of some of your other experiences. Um, so, yeah, so I uh, spend a significant portion of my time with Verisent, but also uh, spend uh, a, a great deal of time. Uh, working uh, as a research fellow with the Productivity Institute, a consortium of eight universities in the UK, uh, all of whose names uh, folks would recognize: Cambridge, Oxford, King's College, London School of Business, London School of Economics, etc. Uh, funded by the the government uh, over five years, looking at the issue of productivity, which is a kind of a nebulous concept to most folks, but really, where we're focused is trying to understand um, not only for the UK, but for the developed world generally, what the requirements are uh, to be able to realize more rapid growth, uh, more equal distribution of income, um, and uh, a really a more, res more successful and responsive uh, economic system than we've seen over the past couple of decades. Um, so uh, not surprisingly, uh, you're gonna you're gonna find out that uh, the the work that I that I do generally in data science, technology, economics all comes together on both sides of my uh, of my life here. Um, so we can we certainly be uh, be very interested to uh, to talk further uh, about that work. It really builds on the 20 years that I spent at IBM, the last 10 of which I was IBM's chief economist and chief analytics officer, and it's become. Uh, in the U.S., certainly, um, the practice to integrate or bring together data science and economics. Uh, 
a number of years ago, four or five, could it be six years ago now, there were 20 or 30 of us who began meeting uh, in the Silicon Valley area, and we have a, now have a meeting scheduled in uh, two weeks in Seattle, there'll be 400 attendees. Um, so this space of bringing together economics and data science uh, in the technology industry, now beginning to spread to other industries as well, uh, has been a rapidly growing space. So that's, uh, that's where I spend, uh, spend my life. Right. That's awesome. Uh, and it's really cool that it gets to encapsulate it, the things that you enjoy doing. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's awesome. And then, so you mentioned that there was um, three things that, it was, that the research you guys are doing is one productivity. So I think that's interesting because you could do many different things to bring out growth. You could do many different things to have an, a successful, a growing economy, but you're yeah. focusing on productivity, correct? Why is it specifically productivity? What does that mean to us in the context of all business or in, of all, even anything uh, not outside of business in addition to? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, we use the economists use the term productivity almost reflexively uh, and <laughs> Uh, ha have an intuitive understanding. Um, to those not in the profession, the term sometimes means uh, work harder, work faster. Um, and, you know, the sort of Charlie Chaplin on the assembly line image. And that's really not uh, what we mean when we use the term productivity. What we're really talking about is the effort that we make as individuals and as organizations to create new and greater sources of value. Uh, value that perhaps hasn't existed in the past uh, or perhaps uh, can be improved in the future. Um, let me give you one or two examples um, that, that should, should uh, hopefully will be a, a good illustration. Much of what we do in our economic lives these days is not in the manufacturing sector. It's not on the assembly line, but it's we provide services to each other. And uh, many of us will pay quite handsomely to have good quality, high level service. A number of years ago, a uh, simple illustration uh, is, um, you know, we have uh, uh, financial services that are provided via what at the time were thought of as stockbrokers uh, in individual trades. Increasingly over time, we've seen organizations like Charles Schwab and others create really holistic um, service capabilities to be able to provide investors, individual investors, with a, a portfolio of capabilities to be able to grow their, their income and their wealth without having to be an expert on every stock that's issued on every stock exchange. Uh, that has, has over time uh, evolved into a uh, organizations like Vanguard and Fidelity, where, um, where that value is now being created uh, by providing a broader range of services. So that's a measure of productivity in the financial services market where there's new sources of value that's being created, that's generating benefit of income and wealth to, to the individual investor that wasn't available years ago. Um, another great example that I always think about is, um, you know, what we've seen evolve in, in recent years in the airline industry. Uh, we have new airline models with, uh, for example, in the U.S. Southwest Air, where a completely different model of serving 
uh, travelers, um, making travel available where it otherwise wasn't. Um, and so that's, that's another uh, source of value that didn't exist. So it's around innovation, creativity, new value, and all of that gets measured in, the, in what economists refer to as productivity, the value that gets created per, uh, generally per hour of effort per, per worker. Um, and, and, that, and there's a expression that economists use, uh, Paul Krugman uh, made famous, uh, uh, productivity uh, in the long run, uh, isn't everything, but it's almost everything. Um, and and that's, that's, that's the source of income uh, and wealth. Okay, cool. I love that. Um, and thanks for elaborating on that. So just to even break it down one step further. So with the finance example, economists yeah. have now, I've, and I, I want to focus on the word measured the effect of, of all these efforts of uh, Charles Schwab, of Vanguard, uh, with bringing their index funds, and then even maybe even Robinhood, which recently IPO'd yes. in, and now um, brings a whole different type of user where people can just um, be in their bed and start investing easily sure. um, without even realizing it. So that's super interesting. And then um, I guess in the beginning, you even reflected on that. It's reflected also with technology, which I guess could be hinted about with Robinhood, but um, even... Um, technology and sales productivity. Uh, maybe you could give me, uh, and we talked about the fourth, um, the fourth industrial revolution. Maybe you mm -hmm. could get, give us a little bit more information on where, where um, some of your research does with uh, technology and sales sure. productivity. Sure, sure. So certainly sales productivity is one of many business processes that's really in the very early stages of adopting uh, many of the capabilities that are now becoming available. Uh, over the course of 20 or 30 years, uh, computing uh, has become ubiquitous uh, and cheap. Uh, and now with the advent of a uh, cloud, uh, cloud model, cloud infrastructure uh, available just about everywhere. Uh, so both computing and storage uh, really make the uh, have created this software as a service industry uh, to be able to provide software uh, to for almost any business process. So um, you know this is the this is the outcome of a, a long period of innovation and investment, uh, much as we've seen historically. There are some, some historic parallels which are quite useful um, in understanding the potential. And because we're talking about the future, I say the potential, the probability uh, of seeing some uh, greater success as we go forward. You know, if you go, go back um, to the beginning of the industrial era, we've seen a, a period where um, initially um, um, steam uh, and water power uh, converted uh, economic activity from what was uh, very much of a manual process to a bit more of a manufactured process. Uh, workers at some point learned um, that they weren't beholden uh, to, a, to, a, uh, to a boss, if you will, but they could find new jobs and change jobs and increase their salary and wages by uh, having their skill competed for in the open market. Um, as, we, uh, the, as the developed world went through the period after the Second World War, um, the 
uh, what, what we think of as the manufactured manufacturing sector, the, the assembly line driven by fossil fuels uh, became the, the driver of growth uh, and workers and management and government worked together to provide a new, new framework for workers uh, and, and labor. Um, and then by the 1970s, we began to see electronic uh, technology appear and evolve. Um, and now we're going through a similar transformation that was um, uh, where the 2008-2009 financial crisis was a, was a very important turning point um, where I think we're now gonna find that the 2020-2021 pandemic uh, is, is going to add to the pressure of transformation. Um, but if, uh, if we see some of the uh, economics play out as we have in the past, there's a reasonable probability that uh, we're going to see um, uh, some very deep and fundamental transformation in how um, not only how work gets done, but in the nature of economics uh, as we go forward, much as we've seen um, in three occasions uh, over the past uh, 200 years. Well, so I wanted to, yeah, so thanks, Martin, uh, for sharing that. Um, I wanted to ask, have we seen um, with the recent pandemic or our current pandemic, excuse me, um, that innovation has been even spurred quicker than uh, past uh, catastrophes, whether it be the 2008 financial crisis or a different type of crisis? Well, you're right. There's been a, a, um, a there are a lot of financial crises in history, but there have been three or four that we consider global financial crises. There have also been a number of pandemics. Both the financial crises and the pandemics have been associated with very significant transformation in activity. Not surprisingly, from a, in terms of financial crises, because balance sheets get, get cleansed. All of the bad assets disappear. And um, then, so that investors are positioned to take on better and more meaningful uh, investments. Uh, pandemics, uh, interestingly enough, uh, I think as we all probably have realized, create a certain psychology. Uh, there's a virus that's unseen, there's a disease that's feared, and that causes workers and business and businesses and governments to react as we've seen. Um, and, and workers question uh, their careers, question their, uh, how they're working, and that drives further change. However, I would, my observation is, is that the changes that we've seen thus far are really only, I would say maybe only the beginning or not perhaps even the beginning. Um, the, the increased use uh, and utilization of e-commerce really is just a continuation of what we've seen over many years already. Now, it's been utilized at a much greater pace, much greater rate, uh, but it's, it's, it's changes that were in train uh, for, for years. Likewise, working from home, the other big trend uh, didn't start uh, eight, 18 or 20 months ago, it increased in intensity. But those are just two of two changes in economic activity and business process 
where we're very likely to see many, many more come along uh, as a result, uh, as both businesses and workers behave uh, in a fundamentally different fashion uh, as we go forward. Yeah, no, that uh, totally makes a lot of sense. Uh, maybe you could, um, many of our listeners are revenue operation professionals or sales leaders. Maybe you can give a concrete example of recent research, either from the pandemic or even from beforehand that uh, might be interesting to them. Yeah, no, we certainly we see the sales profession changing and changing rapidly. And it's a great example of a business process uh, that's going through significant transformation. Uh, many of the processes that sales leaders have to uh, oversee and lead, uh, for example, how territory sales territories are created, how quotas are assigned, uh, are, are now um, in a position where all of the manual effort uh, that in the past has gone into that is, is quickly being replaced uh, in an automated fashion. And it's not automation for the sake of automation, it's automation that results in uh, more uh, efficient and effective sales territories um, and uh, in greater efficiency uh, by the sellers. Um, so it's an opportunity for sellers, for sales leaders, for, for business leaders generally to, to, uh, to benefit financially. Um, and the, these are, are spaces where in the past um, uh, there has been relatively little innovation. Uh, and now we're in a position where um, we, can, we, can, uh, we can introduce some significant changes uh, and really improve um, the, the, um, the lives, so to speak, of sales leaders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I'm trying to understand with that, is that innovation being spurred from uh, the pandemics, that innovation being spurred by um, startups resources now um, not being able to work on bigger projects. So they have to focus on more niche projects. So now they can focus on sales um, because mobile is 10 years over uh, or it's since it started really going um, big. Yeah, so I would, I would say all of the above. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly with what the, the central banks of the world have done of providing an enormous amount of capital. I mean, we've seen what ha- what's happened to the balance sheets of central banks. Enormous amount of capital has been added. Um, all of that capital now is uh, flowing through the financial markets. It's certainly available from, uh, from venture firms, from private equity firms in various different forms. So, mm-hmm. so certainly the, 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 the inexpensive uh, availability of capital is a contributing factor. You're right that the, um, the advent of mobile devices over the past 15 or so years, I guess we're almost getting close to 20 years right. <laughs> uh, of, the, of the invention of the iPhone that in some respect changed everything, um, is making, making the use of these tools uh, at the user level much more readily available. Um, and you know, I, wouldn't, I, w- I don't necessarily think of um, sales performance management as a, a niche space as much as one of many business processes that are now going through some of these changes that, um, that the technology is made available, that um, the uh, availability of capital is made available, um, and, uh, and certainly to some extent, 
you could say certainly the, the pressures created by the pandemic have spurred uh, at, a, at a faster pace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, and then I guess, um, if you will, that the pandemic has also changed the need for some of like territory planning because people weren't flying to places. Um, so then things needed to be reallocated or... Um, Absolutely. No, no question about it. Um, the ability to understand uh, relationships that sellers have uh, with clients, the existing relationships that we want to be able to maintain, uh, we, uh, while at the same time being able to uh, bring in uh, new opportunities into a sales territory that um, in the past, you're right, may have required expensive travel. Um, now is now is available that that hadn't been the case in the past. So that creates a better match, an opportunity to better match the skills of the seller with the need of the client, um, and and uh, allows for the expense uh, to be managed in a little bit more effective way. So that trade-off between skill and location uh, has become more uh, more effective, and the trade-off between managing existing client relationships. But balancing territories at the same time uh, has become uh, a little bit more manageable with the tools that are being created. So across both of those dimensions uh, mm-hmm. is a place where sales leaders now find that they have uh, a greater ability to deliver productivity and efficiency for their sales organization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, makes sense. So if I'm a sales leader, how I think a lot of what we just spoke about is the trends, the macro, if you will, if I'm a sales leader, what from your research can I take to maybe make myself a, a better salesperson? Yes, I can use technology to make myself more efficient. Is there something else that I can also gain from some of your research? Well, I guess the other space is around what we think of as revenue intelligence, mm-hmm. um, the ability to uh, assess opportunities, wins or losses, what the probabilities are, uh, the ability to forecast sales, uh, and the ability to assess the performance of sellers. Um, all of that has been done by sales leaders historically. Mm-hmm. Uh, every sales leader in the world uh, is assessing their opportunities, but they're doing it based on their own experience and their own intuition, which in our research we have found is not wrong, mm-hmm. but it often is a little bit too narrow so that the opportunities that, are, that sales leaders assess as being likely to close uh, maybe a 60% chance of closing, a 75% chance of closing, mm-hmm. actually has a 90 or a 95% chance of closing. And likewise, the opportunities that they feel like, well, I'm not so confident about this, may not close, you know, is really a, a, a 10% chance or a 0% chance. And why do those probabilities matter? They matter because when you're trying to estimate or you're trying to forecast revenue, you have to assign the correct probability to get to the right revenue forecast. So that's, that's where the, the more sophisticated modeling helps not only to provide a better view of the opportunity, the outcome of the opportunities, but to provide a better forecast as well. Mm-hmm. For sure. Let's, uh, let's take that even one step deeper. I'm like thinking like of my prior experiences, like um, sometimes I make opinions based on the data that came from my experience, but like, um, I'm not in sales, but I, you know, I do some business development here and there at past companies and even, um, winning internal marketing conversations, uh, for the company. But, um, 
my personality also might be different than my salesperson personality or the person right. under me. So that could also bring some bias. Is there, has there been any research around that specifically? Yeah, you know, we as humans, we all want to reduce things to rules of thumb, you know, mm-hmm. based on lessons learned. Um, and that's helpful. Um, but the rules of thumb change. Uh, markets change, competitors change, products change. And so we have to be continuously updating those rules of thumb. And that's really what the machine learning and artificial intelligence modeling does for us. It helps us to stay current in terms of those percentages or those ratios that we're applying based based on our prior experience. Um, It gets even worse when these rules of thumb get baked into organizational behavior. You know, we always allocate so much revenue to this or always allocate so much revenue to that or we always expect some certain outcome. Uh, And in some organizations, you can have the same practice going on for 10, 15, 20 years uh, while there's massive changes over that time in a marketplace. So the the machine learning and artificial intelligence really is a way of continuously updating uh, the empirical estimates that are that are being produced by the data and therefore giving you a better view of uh, the opportunity. Mm-hmm. Cool. And then when you reference machine learning AI, is that going as deep as deep learning? <laughs> um, or well, is it even learning, a higher step up? Yeah. So, so strictly speaking, deep learning um, will go beyond just uh, available um, numeric data mm-hmm. to to vision, to text uh, in particular, um, and, and, and typically requires vast quantities of data uh, because you're solving these neural network models at, at many different layers. Um, now, most of these business applications are not yet at the point to be able to use deep learning. However, uh, we are beginning to see some, um, for example, Imagine uh, for medical devices, uh, you're inspecting um, a medical medical device, uh, which is, becomes very important if you're going to insert it into a person, to a human, right? Um, and so oftentimes, um, you have a large number of quite skilled workers who are part of the inspection process. Um, while with the vision technology that we have available now and the artificial intelligence models, the, there's a great deal of uh, prediction that the, that the deep learning model can do of finding a potentially defective, advice, defective device that then only, there's only a, a smaller subset of the product, the actual products that have to be inspected by humans. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there are beginning to be those applications, but again, going back to our fourth industrial revolution discussion, we're in the early days where, right. you know, we're talking about a 20, 30, 40 year period where all of this capability becomes available. And as workers, we see our skills being transformed into other job roles. Right. Oh, that makes sense. Cool. No, thanks for explaining a bit more about deep learning. Yeah. Um, so I guess um, here, maybe I'll ask you a question or two about your time at IBM and then uh, we'll wrap it up. I'd love to know um, two things, and you can, in any particular order, one, what was the most surprising thing about either research findings from there or even your experience there as, um, since you were there for so long? And then um, on another thing is, what thing consistently stayed the same? Um, You were there for 20 years, what, what on day one was the same as on, on, well, 
365 times 20 day. <laughs> now, you know, I think IBM has a strong culture um, around, um, I want to I want to say learning the intellectual content and capability. Uh, certainly the research organization has for decades um, certainly been very productive and highly regarded. Um, and that continues to be the case. So the 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 culture of uh, learning, insight, um, and being able to produce new insights um, and new approaches is one that uh, has been maintained consistently and continues to be uh, quite valuable, uh, intangible asset uh, for IBM. Um, you know, I think one of the, I, had a I've, I guess I would say I have a couple of interesting experiences to share. One would be around um, in, living in a large organization such as IBM, and it's the case in others, um, over time, one learns how to manage almost anything uh, effectively um, because you know, the, the management, the management system that's required uh, is relatively complex, uh, but you get a great deal of experience being able to, to pro, uh, provide management and, and more than management, I would say leadership. Uh, across a broad set of capabilities and a broad set of teams. And I, I probably hadn't thought a lot about that prior to joining IBM. Um, I guess, secondly, a uh, topic you and I have touched on a bit uh, is around diversity. Um, you know, you, the, the workforce is very diverse um, and you learn that um, it's the, it's the um, I was going to use the word diverse, it's the, uh, this, the broad set of points of view that we all bring from whether it's different geographies, different races, different religions, different ethnic groups. And that's what adds to the innovation and creativity. We're not all bringing a similar perspective. We're bringing different perspectives. And those differences, uh, as they come from our life experiences, what allows uh, innovation to be so effective and so productive. Um, and it probably ties into your original point, what's, what's you know, part of the, the intellectual and product success of IBM is tied really to the, to the diverse uh, population uh, of us all bringing uh, many different points of view. Cool, love that. Um, so my final question that I ask all my guests, um, What's your favorite book and why? <laughs> oh, well, my new favorite book uh, is holding up my, uh, my, my Mac here. My, <laughs> my colleague, uh, Diane Coyle uh, from Cambridge, uh, just has a book called Cogs and Monsters, uh, where she uh, spends uh, all, of her, all of her effort um, critiquing the economics profession. Um, <laughs> so uh, she's, done, she's done a terrific, terrific piece of work. Um, and I've just begun going through it, but it, it's, uh, it's, it's become my new favorite book. <laughs> Love that. All right. Well, thanks again, Marin, and thanks to our listeners. Uh, see you guys next week. And Marin, looking forward to staying in touch. Thanks. Good. Bye.